good. So last week, if you weren't here, I'll just give a quick recap. It's there in your, in your notes. Last week, what we did was we, took about, we, we talked about God's original design for humanity. And we looked at the Garden of Eden and we found out two pretty fantastic things. When you look at the scripture and you study out the narrative of the creation, you find this. Number one, you find out that the Garden of Eden was far more extensive than most of us imagine. Uh, it was a sanctuary that the Lord made. In fact, it was the first sanctuary that the Lord made, but it was a sanctuary far grander than, than our imaginations. Uh, and it was a sanctuary that God constructed for encounter with men. He made it as a place for us to meet with him and enjoy intimacy, the Garden of Eden. And then we found out this, that Adam, you know, though we oftentimes we think of the garden as sort of this little plot of land with a rows of vegetables or something, and then Adam's sort of a farmer. But Adam was the first priest. His job in tending the garden was actually the same language that God used when he talked about the, the Levites tending the sanctuary, tending the tabernacle or the temple. He was the first priest, and his job, firstly, was to minister to the heart of God, and then from that place of intimacy, take that atmosphere of encounter and release it across the earth. Multiply it and release it across the earth. And so when we, when we stared at that, uh, those two key points that the garden was a sanctuary and Adam was a priest, it informs us then of who we are because humanity was always meant, God, God designed humanity for the express reason of having intimate communion with us. He made all of us as, as priests before him. And so that's why in Christ, the Bible says that we are a kingdom of priests with access, not just to the throne room of God, but access to the heart of God. Oh, beloved. From there, that, from that revelation, it's where we're supposed to live. We're supposed to actually live out of that place of intimacy and communion. And man, that brings definition to every area of our life. And really, it's the first and second commandment. It's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It's that vertical relationship of intimacy and communion with God. And then from there, every one of the activities of our life is supposed to flow. So we talked about that in depth last week. And so then this week, what I want to do is, I'm example, dial in on it a little, even a little further. And I want to talk about the key reason why we worship, why we do worship, and really why we do 24-7 worship. You know, I, um, I've been at some level been involved in 24-7 worship for uh, almost 14 years now. And still, I mean, to this day, when I try to explain it to people, it, I literally have to say it six or seven or eight times before they actually get what I'm even saying. So they go, so what do you do? I go, oh, well, I do night and day worship and prayer. They go, uh-huh. I go, yeah, it's 24 hours a day. They go, oh, okay. I go, yeah, 2 a.m., 2 p.m., all day, every day. They go, oh, 
like on the third time and I kind of got their attention. I go, yeah, it's live worship and prayer. It never stops. They go, never? Yeah, never. Yeah. And then I do the same, I say the same thing every time. Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. They go, no way. Even on those days. Yeah, that's what never means. Those days too. They go, wow. I'm five times in. I've said it five times by now. They go, oh, wow. I go, yeah, it's been that way for over 10 years, uh, you know, with our church there in Atlanta. And they go, oh, wow, amazing. I go, yeah, it's live worship and prayer. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, there's a worship leader or a worship team there at all times. Somebody's there right now. Yes, that's what 24 seven means. <laughs> it's all the day, all day, all night. I go, you know, I, I, I've got people that, are on staff with us, they stay up all night and that's how they live their lives. And they go, no way. <laughs> yes way, it's what I've been telling you. And it literally takes me that long. And then even I've even had that conversation with people and then they'll come and visit and they'll go, yeah, I know you told me that it was night and day and all day long. I just didn't expect it to be like this. I didn't know what I thought it was, but it was, I didn't see this. I thought it was like a closet with a, you know, a CD player going and you know, people, I go, no, no, no. Live worship and prayer, corporate worship and prayer. Oh, wow. And so the thing of while to get people's mind around even what we're doing, but then the next thing that sometimes they'll ask me and sometimes they won't is, why do you guys, which is a great question. It's a great question. I, I think this, and this just goes for anything in life. Know the why instead of focusing on the what. There's something about understanding the why that really changes you at the heart level. I've seen this in church leadership for a long time. What will happen is people, they'll, they'll have these conferences, you know, a church will be successful or, or whatever. Maybe they're really good at evangelism or maybe they're really good at small groups or, or maybe they're really good at, you know, marriage ministry or, or missions or something. And they'll have these conferences, Right. And so then all the other church leaderships, they'll go and they'll learn, they'll go to the conference to learn what those guys do. So then they learn everything that they do and then they go back to their church and then they try to do the same thing that they do. They learned what they do and they try to do the same what? Same stuff that they do. And, and the, the, it doesn't translate. And the reason why it doesn't translate is they got the what, but they didn't get the why. This works for everything in life. Get the why and it will change the heart. You get the what, it just changes what you do on the outside. If you get the why, it changes what you do on the inside. And, and so that's what I wanna to address tonight. Is I wanna to address the why. Why do we do it? Why do we do worship? Why do we do it 24 seven? The why is the most important thing. All right, so I'm in his role and, and, and the understanding of priests being a priest, ministering to God first and then ministering out from there. So look at Roman numeral two. And I just say that whole thing there again in Adam's role as a priest was a role of ministering to the Lord, beginning with loving God through worship and extending to loving God with all the rest of the activity of his life. And this is the same pattern that we are to follow. And this is a major, major point in this next sentence. As priests, there's not a separation between the sacred and the secular. Let me elaborate on that thought for a second. You know, 
so often we're taught that there's a difference between sacred and secular. That's sort of like what we do at church, that's sacred, and then what we do sort of at the, in the marketplace or in our family, that's secular. That, that understanding is, is not real, it's not true. And here's why it's not true. Number one, when you got saved, God took the blood of his perfect son and he put it all over you. He made you holy. He cleansed you and he sanctified you with holy blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have blood on you, the blood of a pure and spotless lamb, the blood of Jesus in Christ. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sin. It sanctifies us and it sets us free. And here's the thing. You have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. And so everywhere you go, it's holy. Everywhere your feet go, that's holy ground because you have been made holy. Furthermore, you carry God with you. I don't know how you separate sacred and secular when you have deity on the inside of you. I don't know how you do that. It'd be impossible. You can't dissect your spirit from your soul and from your flesh. You're, you're carrying the uncreated God in your spirit everywhere you go. Everywhere you go is holy ground. You're covered in pure blood of a spotless lamb. Everywhere you go, it's holy. So everything you do is sacred. All the activity of your life is to be sacred, not secular. So when we, when we separate it out, we, we tend to compartmentalize God and we live distant from God, but God never intended, us for, for, never intended for us to live that way. Now here's how it works. We worship and we praise God and we're intimate with God. And, and we tend to think, well, that's sacred. And then we go about the rest of the duties of our life. And we tend to think, well, that's secular. But I will tell you, no, it's one reality for a priest. Because your ministry to God and then the activity of your life, they actually flow together. They're cohesive. And so your ministry and worship and then obedience and faithfulness to what God has called you to do in life, that is also ministry to God. Do you see how that works? And that's why in Colossians, he says that everything you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. You know, I remember several years ago when my kids were little and, and, and we had uh, at all times for about seven or eight years, we had two in diapers. Glory to God for babies in diapers. I'm so thankful that we're delivered from that. <laughs> dark pit. Uh, and I remember, you know, you, you got the diaper genie and it's supposed to like guard you from that smell. And I remember you just put the diaper in that thing. That thing doesn't work. It, it's plastic. This is nuclear waste. That plastic, that plastic's not stopping anything. You know, you don't even realize it. You sort of get, you know, you're like the frog in the kettle. You're getting boiled by the fragrance. You don't even know. And then somebody comes in your house, they're like, whoa, you got, you got kids, don't you? are like, oh yeah, we got them up to here. Well, you know, in the early days, here I am, I'm planting the house of prayer 
my kids are at home with my wife and she's a full-time stay-at-home mom vocationally as a mom making three disciples at that time. Now it's four. But I remember when I had, we had three boys, it was just that whole thing. Bless my boys. They're awesome. They're in here. Bless you guys. Love you. I hate to embarrass them, but it is what it is. And, and I remember I would be like, I come to IHOP and this is the early days. So we didn't have a bunch of different ministries. All we had was a prayer room. And, and I was scheduled to be in a prayer room 40 hours a week in those early days. Literally, I would pray in the prayer room 40 hours a week. And then we would throw, take the garbage out and do a few other things just to be able to tidy up. But I mean, it was literally 40 hours a week just in prayer and maybe another 10 to 20 and just other stuff. But most of my time was in, in prayer. Even today, you know, half, uh, half the time our staff spends, they spend it in worship and prayer and, and myself the same. But I remember those early days, 40, 40 hours a week. So I'd come home, my wife would go, well, how was your day? And I go, well, I was in two intercession sets, got the spirit of travail on me, prayed for breakthrough, the anointing of God came on me, felt like I'd fire all over my face, opened the word up, man, the revelation was hitting me, I didn't even know what to do, God loves me, so good, he loves me so much, I start weeping, telling her how awesome it was, and I just, the rest of the day, I just gazed on the beauty. She go, and I go, how was your day? She go. I had three blowouts, two spit-ups, ruined two outfits, had to do two more changes, one doctor's appointment, four hours of colic, and then we ate lunch. <laughs> you know, and the rest of the day, I can't really remember, it was just like baby Armageddon. And um, I was like, well, good, babe. And, and I was... I would feel like, wow, there's a real distinction here. And clearly there was in what we were called to be doing at that time. And I would take evenings and I would say, okay, I got them. You go to the prayer room. Let's, let's do this, you know, and we would trade off time. And, but there was this revelation of priestliness that hit our hearts that enabled us to really, my wife, to be able to, to walk through this with a heart that was alive. Because understanding that whatever God has called you to do Faithful obedience in that thing is ministry to the heart of the Lord. And that's why we don't do our job or our service or anything that God's our family. We don't do that stuff shabbily. We don't do it in a sketchy way because you're not doing your job and you're not doing your kids for you. You're doing it unto the Lord. You're doing it for the Lord. It's what he's called you to do. So faithful obedience to what he's called you to do is priestly service and love unto him. Because you're a priest, it's all sacred. Do you see that? And having that, man, it plumb lines your soul. So whether you're working your job, whether you're worshiping at church, whether you're having a quiet time, whether you're playing with your kids, it's priestly. I remember going out in the yard and throwing the ball with my boys and just, I mean, having gotten up at like 6 a.m. and 12 hours and meetings all day. I can remember this specific time and I was just exhausted, just, you know, six, five hours of sleep, 6 a.m. in the morning, doing all day, come home. Dad's here, which means it's entertainment time. Dad, can we throw the ball? I'm like, Lord Jesus, right now, I need like power. But I remember the Lord encouraging me. It's me you're ministering to. 
would you throw the ball for me? And I was loving and ministering my kids, but man, throwing the ball for my boys, throwing the ball to my boys for the Lord. And that just settled it for me that all the activity of my life as a dad, as a husband, uh, you know, anything I do outside of the house of prayer, it's all priestly. And that's how it is for all of us. When you go to work tomorrow morning, it's priestly activity. Everything we do, when it's done unto the Lord, it's all ministry to him. And that's the activity of our life is priestly service to the Lord. And so then let's again, look at Adam's example because we're gonna find a critical truth about worship. See, this is worship. Worship is loving God with, with adoration and loving God with our life. That's worship. And so then we have to stare back at Adam and get the why. That's the what. Well, now what's the why? Why, Adam? Why were you worshiping God like that? Because that's what he was doing. He was worshiping him with adoration and then tending the garden. That's how he was living. And I want you to put yourself there again in the garden. Think about Adam. It's the beginning of creation. It's perfect. Unveiled intimacy between God and man. Beauty, splendor, power. Adam hasn't sinned yet. No shame is on his heart. He hasn't had to repent yet because he's never sinned. A human, and he's not had to repent because he's never sinned. It's perfect. He's got everything he needs. It's already been provided. Every need is met. There's an unveiled channel of intimacy between him and God. He's never had to get a breakthrough, never had to get a bill paid. Do you know what I'm saying? He, all the needs are met. He's walking in intimacy with God. Yet he's still worshiped. And so it causes us to think, why? Because see, when we approach worship, oftentimes we approach worship with a whole list of reasons why. It feels good. We like the presence of the Lord. We're trying to get a breakthrough. I need liberty. I need healing. I need a financial miracle. I need a family member. So we worship and we pray God. And we have all these needs in mind. But when Adam approached God to worship, he wasn't doing it to try to get any need met. There was a different why to his what. And that's what I wanna dial us in on tonight. The why of Adam's worship was simply this, God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of it. And so often when we approach worship, we approach it in a humanly centered, with a humanly centered approach. But what we see in Adam is, it was a fully God-centered approach. There wasn't a need he was trying to get. He wasn't trying to get a breakthrough. It wasn't a financial bill or something like that, trying to get paid. The only basis for Adam's worship was the beauty and the majesty of God. He was absolutely intoxicated with the person of God. He was drawn in the wonder of the uncreated God, the majesty and the glory of who he was, who God is. He was absolutely taken up in the whirlwind of the person of God. And from there, it was very, very easy for worship to flow. 
See, in worship, there is a worshiper and then there's an object of the worship. And I'm going to talk about it in just a second. But so often we actually get it backwards. We actually get the object of the worship backwards from where it's supposed to be, from who it's supposed to be. The goal of Adam's worship was simply to love and honor and praise God. And that is the foundational reason for worship and prayer. God is worthy of it. I say it there in three under C at the bottom of page one. We don't primarily worship to shift the atmosphere. Though I loved when the atmosphere shifts. You've been in that room when it's been dull and dry and weird and all of a sudden you start worshiping and boom, the atmosphere shifts and you feel heaven in the place. I love when that happens, but that's not why we worship. You don't primarily worship to get our needs met. And I, but I love getting needs met. I love when healing breaks out. I love when our emotions get touched. I love when our hearts get opened up. But it begs the question, if all you ever got was Jesus, is he enough to worship God? Is he enough? Or do we have to live with Jesus plus? I'm so thankful that God offers us and promises us blessings, but is, is Jesus enough for, for worship to flow from our hearts? Is he enough? Because if we approach worship with our needs firstly in mind, we're beginning to get the thing askew. We're beginning to get it backwards. We don't worship primarily to shift the atmosphere, get our needs met, or, or just to see God's power released. So I love when that happens. I so love when that happens. Those are all wonderful things. I'm so thankful when they happen. But the thing is, we worship because he's worthy of it. Flip on over top of page two. So thinking of Adam's example and thinking about his worship flowing simply from that place of the recognition of the wonder of God. Now let's just shift real quick and think about the throne room. Because right now in the throne room of God, at the center, at the epicenter of the created order stands Jesus in perfection and beauty alongside the father who the book of Revelation tells us is like a diamond and like, like a, a ruby, a jasper and a sardius, he has light coming out of him. He has thunder and lightning coming out of him. That throne room is a place of glory and majesty unmatched. The floor is a sapphire sea. There's seven lamps of fire, four living creatures. Oh, I love the living creatures. <laughs> I, I, I love them. Lion, eagle, ox, and man. I love them. They're covered in eyes. I mean, they're so unusual. I, 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 I. I mean, eyes everywhere. I, I mean, they got eyes. They're covered in eyes outside and within. And the entire focus of those living creatures are seraphim. The entire focus of them is the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. Because we think about Adam's example, it's the exact same for the heavenly, the heavenly ranks. Those angels, they never had to get a breakthrough for something. They never had a personal need met. They're never fighting to try to get, you know, something shifted in their heart. They've always been fully enamored with the one on the throne and his son, Jesus, at his right hand. And they've always flowed in pure and perfect worship, 
incessantly since the dawn of, of their being, since the dawn of, of, of their creation, the, the living creatures have not ceased to sing holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. It's wild because when you look at the Bible, you see Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw the same exact thing that John saw. Same living creatures, six wings, with two they cover their face, two they cover their feet, with two they flew. And I think of them as flying and orbiting. And everywhere they fly, they've got an eye that stays fixed on the throne, no matter how they turn. And those eyes continually stay fixed on the object of worship. And with every turn, they're seeing a new facet of the infinite wonder and majesty of God. And they're flying and their eyes take in glory. And they say, holy. And they keep flying, holy, holy. And their eyes are getting blown away at every turn. And when you see it in Isaiah and then you see it in John, that's 800 years apart. And they're singing the same song. We get tired of the song if they play it for four minutes. They've been singing it for 800 years, at least that we see in scripture. But no, it's been way longer than that. It's been since the first moment of their existence, the seraphim, they're known as the burning ones. That's what seraphim means. They're the burning ones. They've been singing of the wonder and the glory, the transcendent God for since the first moment of their existence. And they're not tired with it. They're not bored with it. Why? Because he's infinite in beauty. He's infinite in wonder. He's infinite in worth. He's infinite in glory. They don't get worn out. They're not doing it to get a need met. They're not doing it to get a breakthrough. They're doing it because the object of their worship is worthy of it. The glory of him warrants it. It even demands it. I love what my friend Alan Hood says. He says, oh, oh no, God's not worthy of 24-7 worship and prayer. He's worthy of 25-8. He's worthy of more than what we can even give him. And in that place of perfection, the throne of God, Just like it was in the garden, there's no jockeying for position. There's no angel on row 87 going, I need to be on row two. I'm a much better singer than those angels on row two. I should be on the platform. I really should. I can sing holy, holy, holy. Have y'all heard me? Have you heard me sing holy? Because when I sing it, it's anointed. It's basically perfect. They're not trying to outrank anybody. They're not looking around going, man, when's this going to end, man? I'm tired of being in here, you know what I'm saying? We've been here forever. They're not, they're not saying any of that. They're not distracted. They're not bored. They're not tired. They're absolutely engaged and they're drinking down the wonder of the one they're gazing upon. I have a theory that every holy that comes out of the mouth of the seraphim is a new holy. In other words, they're not just singing the same line over and over and over. They're actually seeing a new facet 
of the infinite wonder of God. And they've continued to sing a new holy with every time they glimpse him. The holies that never stop, every holy is a new holy. Because they're staring at a new facet of the wonder and the glory of him. And in that place where, where the glory of God is in perfection and that place of pleasure and that place of majesty, nobody is wondering why. They're not wondering why. They know why. He's worthy. Now here's where it gets a little sharp. Contrast this to our Contrast it to the way that we go about even our church attendance. Oh, watch out for your toes. Man, you want to go to church? Oh, well, what's he going to preach on? Do you know who's leading worship? I really like when so-and-so leads worship. Oh, 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 oh. But are they, oh, they're leading. Oh, well, I don't really want to, want to go. Because, yeah, I don't like that as much. I like the other one as much. Like the other one, that's the one. I, they're so I can really worship when they lead. Oh, 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 they're doing their floor still. <laughs> Y'all didn't know we were doing a worship check. A worship checkup. We weren't, we were messing up our floor over and over and over. That's what we were doing. But, oh, they're still doing the floor. Well, we'll come back, you know, when the floor's not a mess. You know, other church, well, they've got, you know, they've got better coffee. It doesn't have to be about this place. It could be about any. Which church has the best coffee, the best sound, the best lights, the best leader, the best worship leader, the best musicians, the best air conditioning, the best stadium seating, the best padding? I can't sit on those hard seats. I need it four inches of foam. <laughs> and so then we show up and all of our preferences are met, right? But if they don't sing the song we like, or if they sing a style that's not our style, we can't worship. And what's happened is this. The object of our worship is no longer the uncreated God. It's us. Because if it's not right for me, I can't worship. Our problem is we fed our consumerism so much that we don't realize that wasn't the point to begin with. The point was him. The point was always him. He's worthy. The point was always the wonder of him, not the preference of us. The point was always the glory of him, not the desire of us. And we've gotten it so upside down now that unless all of our needs are perfectly addressed, we just assume go to the lake has come together and worship. Which is why, I believe, when you look at the, at the stats for church attendance, most church attenders, they go about 50% of the time. Most church attenders go about 50% of the time. 
there's a whole group, about 25%, that only go about once a month. And then there's a group of committed people, they go every week, and then they go a little bit more even. But about 50% of, of the church attenders, they go about every other week. And why? Because when they come together at church, it's not about the object of their worship. It's about their own personal pleasures and their needs. And the truth of the matter is, if it's about what they want, going to the lake, it's just about the same as going to church. Because it's really all about me anyway. Am I preaching too hard? It's true. It is just true, guys. Look, and I'm not saying we should do things a wreck at church. I think we should do it well. I think we should have nice lighting. I think we should have good sound. I think it should sound better than fingers on a chalkboard when people sing. I I really believe that. I think it should be something we can actually enjoy while we're doing it. I think that's right. I think that's good in God. But there's got to be a place where we get out of ourselves. We get over ourselves and we get tuned into the one who is the object of all worship. He is the worthy one. There's gotta be a place where we shift the focus from me and what I want to him. And this is what I say there in Roman numeral three. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus enough? Is his glory enough reason for us to continue in unceasing worship? If I weren't going to receive a breakthrough, would I continue to worship? It could be, the question isn't, what will 24-7 worship do for me or my family? The question is, is his glory worthy of our ceaseless adoration? It's really true, guys. We are very humanly centered. We're very self-focused. I'm just talking about the church in America. Very self-focused. So we tend to operate only on what makes us feel awesome. I, I test this out on social media at times. I'll put a post out there, something about the love of God, how God loves you, he likes you, he's smiling over you. A jillion likes. And then I'll put, we need to turn away from all of our selfish preference and turn to the only worthy one in adoration. Three likes. It's like my mom, my son, and Gabe. He's trying to make me feel better. Four likes because Jeff Lyle jumps in on top. When we make it God-centered, it's amazing how the church in America doesn't have the palate for that. But it was always supposed to be God-centered. That's why we were, God made us to be priests. This is what our community is about. It's about growing the knowledge of Jesus that we may perceive his worth and in turn give him the glory due him. And then from that place of worship to to declare his glory across the nations. This is really what I wanted to get to is Roman numeral four and talk about the worth of Jesus and talk about what's in the mind of the heavenly ranks and and consider the scene in Revelation five. So I put a few verses there on your outline, but I'm gonna actually work just through the the whole chapter a bit and, and, and just talk about this scene. So in Revelation five, it's a... It's a continuous scene that, that started in Revelation 4. It's one scene. So 4 and 5 go together. And John, what happens is he's taken into the throne room and he sees God on the throne in that place of fire and wonder and glory. He sees those living creatures singing holy, holy, holy. He sees the angelic ranks. He sees the 24 elders. 
He sees the seven lamps of fire. He sees the sea of glass. He sees the thunder and the lightning and the voices coming out of the being of God. It's Revelation 4. And then in Revelation 5, he dials in on a specific detail. And it's this scroll that's in the father's hand. The father on the throne is holding a scroll. And this scroll is God's plan to give the rulership of the earth to someone. That's what's in the scroll, to give the authority and the leadership of the kingdom of God, heaven and earth together, to give that to someone. And so the scene in Revelation 5, it's still the throne room, but what ends up happening is just, it's just so awesome. I, I've loved, I've preached this so many times. So verse two says, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming, with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? This is an important verse. Here's why. He's in the throne room. There's thunder coming out of the being of God. There's lightning coming out of the being of God. The place is charged with power and glory and majesty and wonder. There is God. And he says he sees this angel and the angel is strong. How strong do you have to be to be considered strong in that place? How, how strong is he? This is a big, bad angel. I mean, he's strong. And then it says, he says with a loud voice. Again, there is thunder coming out of God, but this angel is loud. How loud is he? He's real, real strong and real, real loud. He's so big. He, he is fierce, this fierce angel. Who is worthy? See, that's nothing compared to the angel. He thunders it. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy to take leadership of the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdom of God ruling in heaven and earth? Who is worthy? This, this, this question, it hits like an earthquake and the shockwaves just go out. And it just reverberates around that place. Who is worthy? Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy, worthy. And in verse three and verse four, there's clearly a bit of time that goes by because it says, and no one was found. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. See, there's this passage of time. They go through this process where they actually look through the angelic ranks, the human ranks, and the demonic ranks. First, they look through all the angels. 
They look at every one of the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. They look at the living creatures. They look at the myriads of angels. They look at the, the, the Daniel 4 watcher angels. They look at every single one in the angelic ranks. They look at the strong angel himself. Not worthy. Not worthy. And then they turn their attention to humanity, past, present, and future. They look through every single notable figure from all time. I mean, they look and they see Caesar and they see Pharaoh and they see Nebuchadnezzar and they see Alexander the Great. They see Hitler. They see, name your president. They see Washington and Lincoln. They see Trump and Hillary. They see future. They see past. They see every leader, every movie star, every athlete, every person of notoriety. None are worthy. And then they look below the earth. They look at every demon, every principality, every force of wickedness in the heavenly places. They look at every little imp to every high-ranking principality. They look at Lucifer himself. Not worthy. And as they finalize their search, it comes clear to John that there is none in all creation worthy to take the scroll and execute the Father's plan. There's none in all creation worthy to lead heaven and earth together in the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning over it. And it says, and John wept much. If you weep much, you have to weep for a while. I just, it's so wild to me. There's John and he's weeping and weeping. He's there in the throne room and he's weeping and weeping and weeping because what has happened is this. The idea of failure has become clear to him. The utter failure of humanity, the utter failure of angelic ranks, the utter failure of Satan and all the demons. Failure, there's not one worthy. And then one of the elders leans over, hey John, stop crying, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has prevailed. He has prevailed to open the scroll, to loose its seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has won. Oh. And then he looks and it's a lamb. The lion is a lamb. The lamb is a lion. And right in that mystery, we find this. It's one of perfect power and one of perfect meekness that's the only one that's worthy to rule in the Father's kingdom. The lion is the lamb. Seven eyes, perfect understanding. Seven horns, perfect authority. Slain from the foundation of the world. The only one worthy is Jesus Christ. Then in verse six, at the revelation of Jesus, 
We see him, verse seven, he takes the scroll from the father. And then in verse eight, here's what happens. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Everybody goes flat. Beloved, this is the climactic point of creation. When Jesus Christ takes that scroll in his hand and he begins to execute the father's plan for the kingdom of God to come on earth. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. None is worthy but him. And when he begins to step forward in that authority, they fall flat, they fall before him. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, a kingdom of priests, there it is. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, beloved, there's not a question in that place of why. The question is answered with a glimpse at the worthy one. He is worthy. He's worthy of our life. He's worthy of our breath. He's worthy of our strength. He's worthy of our minds, our will, our emotions. He's worthy of everything we have. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our adoration, of our love. He's worthy of our intimacy. He's just worthy of our time to just sit there. I don't know how many hours I've sat there and I've gone, here I am. And I can't hear you right now. And I can't see you and I don't know what you're saying. And I'm just a guy. And I don't know what everything you're trying to get us to do. I'm trying to lead, I don't even know. But you know what? If you like this, here I am. Because you're worthy. You're worthy of a life poured out and laid down. You're worthy. You're worthy of worship. In fact, you're worthy of unceasing worship. And that brings us to the point, the reason we do what we do, the reason why it makes sense for someone at 2 a.m. in the morning to be up here worshiping God It's not because 2 a.m. is awesome and there's something special we're gonna get at 2 a.m. Our night watchers know, man, there's many a night that they've slugged away singing love songs to a God they can't see in a completely empty room. And at that point, there's no natural reason to do it. There's not a, you know, like a bonus check coming at the end of the set. Nobody's gonna run in here at 2 a.m. and go, wow, you're so anointed. You're the next big worship leader for Bethel Music, wow. No, at 2 a.m., there's no audience. It's hard, it's quiet. But there is a really good reason. He's worthy of it. 
He's worthy of 2 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And he's worthy of every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, of every one of our lives. He's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. That's why we do it. And you know what? We do it really weak sometimes. It's, and it's really rough sometimes. I just, the other day, come in a couple times at 6 a.m., and, and the, the 6 a.m. worship leader, they're having a hard time. Like the, the plugs aren't right. And they're plugging it in and nothing. And nothing. And the guy that's been up here since 4 a.m., they're just still going. They're like looking at him like, any second, please plug it in. Me out of here. Me out. I'm out. I'm done. Been here since 11 p.m. It's 6 a.m. I'm going home. I'm going. That's what they're thinking. I'm going home. I'm going home. <laughs> they start saying, but here's what I saw. They're doing that. Like, come on, man. Come on, man. And, and then what happens is they can't figure it out. And I'm up here and I'm not techie at all. I'm like, is it this one? <laughs> is it that one? And I don't know. And I look over at the worship and I go, hey, just give me a minute. And they go, they just close their eyes. Start singing to Jesus. Because he's worthy. He's worthy of them not walking off. That's what we're doing it for. We're doing it because he's worthy, guys. We're not doing it to become cool in ministry. This isn't a platform that everybody goes, ooh, that's awesome. It's not awesome. We're doing it because he's worthy. And that's the shift that has to take place in our hearts. It's, it's why we come together, because he's worthy. It, it's why we come when, when no one's around, because he's worthy. It's why we don't stop loving and worshiping him, because he's worthy. It's why we live our lives for him, because he's worthy of it. The wonder of who he is, it compels us into ceaseless adoration.